Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I can promise you without a doubt you're absolutely in the right place. And if you're interested in the future of business, this is also where you need to be for the next hour. The topic today is knowledge. That's our buzzword, loaded word. Let me get started. Back in 2008, then editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, Chris Anderson, proposed something called the end of theory. The data deluge makes the scientific method obsolete. Wow. He was poking at something that was centuries old, scientific method. And this is considered a charter for a revolution in how businesses are run and how we humans create knowledge. I don't even know if we are aware that we're creating knowledge. I think we think, do we know? How do we know? How do we learn? How do we share knowledge? I had never thought of it in terms of creating knowledge, but that's what we're going to talk about. So let's fast forward seven years later after Chris Anderson's pronouncement, and we have big data everywhere. It's uber-hyped. It's a buzzword in business and IT. Then we have the Internet of Things. It's accelerating data creation. All of those sensors are pouring more and more data into the world. What do we do? with it? How do we make sense out of it? How do we use it? And then we have an old word, artificial intelligence. That's two words. And that includes machine learning, deep learning. I don't even know what those are, but I know my panelists are going to help me. And those are back in fashion. So the question on the table today is, are we now at the start of the most radical transformation of thoughts and knowledge? But this time, it's not people, we humans who are leading the way. It looks like computers are taking the lead. A lot to think about. We have a panel of experts who are going to help us figure this out with their insights and expertise and their passion, and they certainly have it. So let me get started. First up on the panel, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show somebody who was on a, a long time ago, Francesco Mari. He's a vice president responsible globally for the HANA business program inside SAP Custom Development. And Francesco sent me the following quote from Daniel Kahneman. Those of you not familiar, Kahneman wrote, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a best-selling 2011 book, and Kahneman is a Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics winner. And here's the quote. Casual, I'm sorry, causal. I always confuse those words. Causal explanations of chance events are inevitably wrong. That's a powerful accusation. Francesco Mari, welcome back. How are you today? I am good, Bonnie. Thanks, and great to be back in the show. Actually, you know what? I always, as a non-native English speaker, I always find this causal, causal, and casual uh, <laughs> uh, thing so funny because uh, actually uh, they're not exactly opposite to each other, but sort of are in certain contexts, and definitely in our context of the conversation today. So. Yeah, so I, I picked this quote of Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman, by the way, is a fascinating character because he's a psychologist who ended up winning this. It's not really the Nobel, but let's, for sake of simplicity, let's call it the Nobel Prize for, for economy. But this quote for me really represents somehow the other side, or at least a complementary perspective on this idea of computers creating knowledge that was very much at the, you know, the core of the charter outlined by, by Chris Anderson. And the, the 
fascinating point is that if we look at the way we, human beings, created knowledge, more or less since the very beginning, since the Greeks probably, we created models of the world. We identified laws. Think about, you know, Newton uh, gravitational law, Einstein famous, uh, you know, E equals uh, MC square, or even laws that are not strictly uh, deterministic like those ones, but the law of demand and supply in, in economic science. These are all models of the world that we somehow distill from our understanding of how phenomena in the, in the reality works. Uh, now we have these fantastic toys, computers. Mm -hmm. We have mm -hmm. huge amounts of data that we can give to those toys to play. And suddenly, these toys can actually identify things that we call correlations, so phenomena that go together in the world, phenomena that are strictly connected to each other and simply are identified by the sheer power of calculation and, and mathematics. And, uh, and that's a new perspective. It's a completely new perspective because this is a knowledge that we create that is without models, is modelless. Uh, uh, I don't know if the word exists, but I, I, I kind of like it. And, uh, and it's, an, it's a new thing. It's a new thing that we have to, to, to you know, uh, start to figure out how to cope with it without forgetting, and this is the, um, you know, the warning that Kahneman gives, that a lot of funny things can happen. I don't know if you're familiar with the famous, uh, um, you know, the flying spaghetti monster case. Where no. a funny guy for a you know, political story in the U.S., but ended up identifying a huge correlation, strong, scary correlation between global warming evolution, so the temperature of the planet, and pirate attacks. So it's highly correlated. The difference compared to our old model-based knowledge is that in this case it's very hard to draw conclusions, to draw actions, to make predictions. I kind of doubt that increasing the number of pirates is a, is a, is a good way to mitigate the problem of, of global, global warming. So it's a, it's a new uh, um, scenario we have in front of us in which we have these two potentially competing paradigms of, mm -hmm. of creating knowledge, with each with you know, some very clear, strong points and weaknesses, and, and we have to learn to cope uh, with that. So very, Thank very you. strong challenge for Thank the you, Francesco. Wonderful opening and very interesting. I just looked up, I think you know, and I know Dave Fowler, our, our series sponsor, knows I'm quick on the draw when it comes to research here. I looked up the Flying Spaghetti Monster, and I found out that it's even got its own initials. FSM is the deity of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster of Pastafarianism, which is a portmanteau of pasta and Rastafarian, a social movement that promotes a lighthearted view of religion and opposes the teaching of intelligent design and creationism in public schools. Whoa, that's a whole other show. Thank you for bringing that up. Also, I want to thank you very much, Francesco, for validating me on my confusion of causal and casual, where in English we just transpose two letters and we get completely different words, but as you say, they're not necessarily that far apart. Great introduction to the topic, Francesco, and I understand this topic is yours. You brought it to the show, so thank you very much for getting us started. I'd like to introduce our second panelist. 
panelist. He's Vishal Danica. He's a managing director and head of customer innovation and strategy at Hortonworks. And we've had other colleagues from Hortonworks on the show. And here's the quote from Douglas Merrill, who founded Zest Cash. And he's a former CIO and VP of engineering at Google. Enough said. Here's the quote. Given enough data, everything is statistically significant. Isn't that just the darn truth? Welcome, Vishal Danica. How are you today? I am doing great, Bonnie. Good morning to you as well. Thank you. for. Oh, you sound wonderful. Glad we had you call back. You're on a very clear line. Bravo. So talk to me. Interesting quote from Merrill. And uh, tell me, do you find this in your work, that given enough data, everything that we can prove, anything if we have enough numbers and push them into the right buckets? What do you think? I completely think so. Uh, to me, this quote really embodies what we know of big data. Um, so think about it this way. Statistically, uh, whatever we have learned around statistics, right, simple statistics, I think it limits us in the big data context. If one were to blindly follow Statistics 101, you would tend to see the wrong answers will quickly start following. And what I mean by that is uh, dovetailing on what Francesco also talked about, right? Uh, when you start looking into a typical statistical analysis, you often let go what's sitting into the tails. And more often than not, there are certain data points in that, inside the tail which have a very significant impact and importance to a company's decision-making capabilities too. Often, because of the limitations on the compute capability, one would only look at what is statistically relevant. But nowadays, having the capability of big data, which brings you the volume, variety, and velocity of data analysis, you can actually touch upon the tail and draw upon some correlations which we would have completely skipped and passed. So to me, this statement really drives that point home, and I, I love this quote uh, from Douglas Merrill. Thank you very much, Vishal. Also a good intro, and welcome to our panel. Very pleased to have you here. And now let me introduce our third guest. He has lots of names. It's Jay Thoden Van Velsen. He's a program director of HANA Services in the Global Practice for SAP, and that includes big data and the IoT, both of which came up in my opening. And here's a fascinating quote from Yan LeCun, that's Y-A-N-N-L-E-C-U-N, who, by the way, was born in 1960. He's a computer scientist with contributions in all of our wonderful topics here. Machine learning, computer vision, mobile robotics, com computational neuroscience, and on and on and on. So uh, and he is also known for his work on optical character recognition and computer vision using convolutional neural networks, CNN, not to be confused with the TV network. And here's the quote. Imagine a box with 500 million knobs, 1,000 light bulbs, and 10 million images to train it with. That's what a typical deep learning system is. I'm already confused. Jay Thoden Van Velsen, why don't you enlighten me, please? Enlighten me. How are you, Jay? Pretty good. Thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, the reason why I like this uh, quote a lot, because it's very practical. It, it actually describes in a very practical manner what a deep learning system is, and specifically convolutional neural networks, as he's pretty much the guru of, of um, those types of networks since about the 80s. Um, what I also like to add is that after that, once you have that um, deep learning system, all input you're giving to it will be interpreted as whatever you trained it with. Um, mm -hmm. And I, li I like that because on th this is the guy that, you know, more than anybody in the world has done the work 
on um, convolutional neural networks, image processes, care, processing, character recognition. Um, and he is exactly one of these guys that is tempering the hype that we now hear a lot about um, in, uh, in, the, in the industry news about how AI is going to transform everything. Um, I'm also based in uh, Silicon Valley, so you hear a lot mm -hmm. about the singularity stuff. And I find it really interesting that it's exactly the academics, the, the actual practitioners that are now with you know, big companies like Google and Baidu and, and Facebook, um, that uh, it's exactly those that are trying to say, like, yes, there is a lot of promise in this. It can do a lot of things. But it probably won't do everything that you think it can, or not anytime soon. Mm, so that's the good news and the bad news, right? And you never know what's Correct. coming down the pike. Thank you. Very interesting. I have to add one more thing about Mr. LeCun. He also co-developed the Lush programming language with Leon Botu. I don't know anything about Lush, but, Jay, I'm an old-time, and you can take that any way you please, uh, an old-time COBOL programmer and PL1 programmer, and I came up cutting my teeth on all kinds of languages, including uh, assembly language and writing compilers. So do you know what the Lush programming language is? It sounds delicious to me, but do you have any idea what that is? Unfortunately not, but... Uh... I'm sure he's very smart. The man is, uh, is very interesting to talk to if you catch him on YouTube or any kind of talk or anything like that. I'm going to look forward to finding out more. It's actually LISP-like. It's a LISP-like object-oriented programming language for researchers, experimenters, and engineers interested in numerical applications. You're right, very smart people. Jay, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for joining us on the panel. I'm going to circle back to Francesco Mari, and I have probably the most difficult question for the entire show for the three of you, starting with Francesco, because Future of Business with Game Changers is part of our bigger series called Coffee Break with Game Changers, my flagship series. I'm going to ask the three of you, what are you drinking right now during the show or what do you plan to drink after? I know we practiced this before, so I'm looking forward to some wonderful personality tidbits from each of you. Francesco, Mari, where are you calling from? What time of day and what's in your cup? So I'm calling from Bologna today. Actually, I'm based in Milano, North Italy. Today I, I was visiting a customer, so I'm uh, um, something like 150 miles, and it's 4 p.m., 4.15 p.m. And, uh, you know, I have to make a confession here because um, I have a global job, so I, I, I travel a lot. I'm often abroad, and I do disappoint a lot of people because when I introduce myself, I say I'm from Italy, people ask me about soccer, and people ask me, make sure that there's good coffee around because Italians are famously picky about coffee. And I don't care about soccer. Actually, Jay is, mm -hmm. is far more uh, <laughs> interested in soccer than me. And I drink anything that's around. Right now, I'm, I, have, I actually have to confess I'm drinking water because it's pretty hot here. It's really late spring. It's very... But I've been talking probably five hours in a row earlier today, oh. so I, I really crave a beer. So I didn't dare <laughs> to have one before the first show, but, uh, you know, I guess that, you know, 10 minutes after the, the end of the show, I will have a beer in front of me. And you want to tell us what kind of beer we'd really like to know, Francesco? What, what's your favorite? Oh, yeah, sure. When, uh, I, when, I, when it's available, I really like, well, you know, in general, my favorite beer, beer is Sam Adams. In the U.S., that's really good. Otherwise, uh, a very good Italian beer is called Moretti. You can actually find it in the U.S. as well. So those are actually pretty similar taste if you want. 
Thank you. You uh, covered a lot of bases. You started out with water. You talked a little bit about fine Italian coffee. By the way, my daughter is traveling in her new job. She's a, a pediatric gastroenterologist who's now working for CRO, doing going around the world on bid defenses to get the research for new drugs in development from companies around the world. And she and her husband are coffee aficionados. They have the most amazing setup in their new home in North Carolina. But they went to Italy a couple weeks ago. They're going back soon, and they said, Mom, the coffee was unbelievable. They found their favorite little cafe the first day they were wherever they were. I can't remember the city. And they just kept going back and just adoring the coffee and the espresso. So there, Francesco, thank you so much. Sam Adams for you when you're off the show. You deserved it. Now, Vishal Danica, where are you calling from? What time of day? And what's in your cup? I won't ask you to top what Francesco said. Just talk to me. <laughs> I am actually calling from Dallas, which is home for me, and uh, it's about uh-huh. 9.18 a.m., and actually, it's for a change. I'm not on the road and traveling, so which is good, and whenever I am at home working from my home office, I always treat myself to my power uh, cup in the morning, which is a very hot cup of Indian chai, and it's actually made with a special spice blend, which happens to be a family recipe. What kind of spices? You knew I was going to ask. <clears throat> oh, yes. You know what? I would be lying if I know exactly what all goes on it, but here is my take at it. And if my mom were to be listening, she probably is going to just slap me on my hands and tell me, no, that's not what it is. But if I were to guess, I think it's ginger, cardamom, cloves, cinnamon, and black pepper. Ooh, nice. With the kick from the pepper. I love that. Thank you very much for sharing and tell your mom I said hi and not to slap you too hard. <laughs> Jay Thoden Van Velsen, you've got a t- there's two tough acts for you to follow here, Jay. Where are you calling from? Time of day, what are you drinking? I'm calling you currently from Aptos, California, which is just south of Santa Cruz, which itself is just south of Silicon Valley on the Pacific Coast. And um, it is at the moment just uh, short of uh, 20 minutes after 7 a.m., mm-hmm. um, which is actually a relatively normal uh, time for me to start my day, if not earlier. And I'm drinking um, jasmine flower white tea, which is uh, a legacy from um, a bunch of trips to China a couple of years ago. And uh, you should try it. It's absolutely delicious. Sounds wonderful. Do you put anything in it or just plain no, jasmine? Just that. Delightful. Very nice. Thank you. Do you make it from leaves or from uh, from a bag? Uh, both, depending on okay. quality. So, in the mostly the the volume goes from the tea bag. Um, the special cups of tea come from a special little tin cup. Very, very nice. The reason I ask is when we have UK guests on the show, Jay, very often, well, one recently in particular was chiding us Americans who uh, drink from tea bags. And he said, that's called dusty tea. That doesn't count as real tea. Shame, shame. So I always want to check. Well, they put so you- milk and sugar in their tea, which um, is uh, probably more destructive than uh, a little bit of dust in your tea bag. Oh, the game is on. Thank you, Jay. I'm going to remember that the next time we have a Brit on the show. By the way, our series sponsor, Dave Fowler, is tweeting at hashtag SAP Radio, and he just told me in his cup today is Starbucks cinnamon coffee with cream. Sounds delicious, Dave. Very, very good. And by the way, as Dave knows, and Francesco may remember, they don't let Bonnie have caffeine on radio show days. This is my fifth live show this week for SAP in four days. I'm only allowed to have water, but they let me 
me sip it through a straw when I'm on the air. So there, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. We have a great panel today, good sense of humor, great insights. This is a really deep topic. It's the buzz is knowledge. We're talking today about big data, the future of creating knowledge. Will people be leading the front? Will computers be leading? What are we teaching our computers, and who's behind all of that? We're talking IoT, big data, AI, deep learning, lots of interesting stuff. You're going to learn a lot, I promise. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear a lot more from Francesco Mari, Vishal Danica, and Jay Thoden Van Velzen. And I'm still going to be Bonnie D. Graham after the break. So let's tell our audience, don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Bread out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as business simplification, insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, business networks and supply chains, and the ever-present need for speed are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP Services. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of business with Game Changers. And in fact, the future of business today, we're talking about future of creating knowledge, which is integral to your doing business and having business and succeeding in business. First up on our roundtable, I'm going to give the honors of starting off our first conversation thread to Francesco Maria, VP at SAP Custom Development, responsible globally for the HANA Business Program. And Francesco told me in his notes before the show, he said the following. I'll try to read it well. The Internet of Things and, in general, the availability of technology able to deal effectively with very large amounts of data are changing the relationship between humans, organizations, and computers, or perhaps human organizations and computers. So we've got humans on one side, machines on the other. Francesco, why don't you expand this for us, and then I will invite your co-panelists to add their thoughts. Go ahead, Francesco. Absolutely. So the point I was trying to make here is that... uh, the way we've been using computers traditionally, um, it's uh, aimed at addressing relatively simple deterministic tasks, right? We want to record invoices or we want to write our shopping list and blah, blah, And uh, uh, the, there, there's, there's a behavior that we code in the computer. You were talking about your experience with uh, you know, PL1 mm-hmm. or COBOL. So you, yep. you, you ask the computer to do certain things and you put certain data inside the computer and uh, you know what's coming out. And if what, what's coming out from the, from the computer is not what you expect, likely there's a mistake somewhere, right? You go back in the, in the code and say, oh, this, this line of code is wrong. Mm-hmm. What we're 
addressing now with you know IoT, big data, and and these more sophisticated algorithms is a paradigm where we actually have computers producing results that go beyond what we put in it. We put a lot of data and we ask the computers to draw conclusions based on certain methods. And actually, we, sometimes we get results that are <laughs> impossible to understand or sometimes you know, very silly. Uh, think about some of the recommendations, for example, you could get from, from uh, um, uh, e-shopping uh, e- 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 um, websites. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's a mistake in the code. It's just like when humans look at facts and draw <coughs> wrong conclusions. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's pretty much what is happening on a daily basis in front of us. And it's accelerating, actually. Thank you very much. Let's turn to Vishal Danica. Vishal, any comments on what Francesco just put on the table for us? Actually, that's a pretty interesting perspective, uh, Francesco. Yeah. So one of the things which I see is you mentioned about uh, recommendations uh, coming on an e-commerce website, and that's something which we are seeing has always been a challenge. Like how often you go to a grocery store as well. Forget about e-commerce. You go to a grocery store and you are checking out, and there spits out a bunch of different coupons, and those coupons are for things which you have never in your life even bothered to purchase. And when you're at that checkout, often the grocery store is also asking you for your loyalty code or barcode or your phone number to kind of identify you in their system. And it's pretty uh, pretty interesting to see that with all this amount of information, they still are not able to kind of really fine-tune their promotions to you or your recommendations to you on an e-commerce site. And Amazon, for example, is a great example of doing this in a much better manner than many of the other companies have done so far along. But that's changing. That dramatically is changing. As we see at Hortonworks engaging with our customers in the retail space primarily because of the e-commerce example that's a perfect fit out there, we see a lot of our customers are starting their journey towards a data-driven transformation using big data and Hadoop in putting together a recommendation engine. And a lot of them have done really successful transformation around that in identifying a customer, looking at their past purchase patterns, and transforming that into what is that they're going to be interested in. And it's changing so rapidly, Bonnie. Now you start looking into iBeacons where they are tracking a customer's movement in a store and how much time did they spend at one particular uh, display versus the other display, and then kind of recognizing in real time what kind of a promotion to send out to this particular customer. It's amazing. I, I just believe that five years out, our world is going to drastically change. I think five years out is going to be something you're going to be talking about in our crystal ball predictions round later in the show, Vishal. So keep that thought in mind. Jay Thoden Van Velsen, thoughts on what Francesco put on the table and Vishal's comments. Where do you stand or sit? I'm, I'm, in the, I'm partially in agreement, partially not so much. Um, on the one hand, absolutely, I'm convinced of the value that big data, IoT, uh, deep learning and machine learning techniques. I think all of these four kind of belong together. They have overlaps and uh, rely on each other in many ways. And these um, things will make a massive difference in people's lives in the in the coming years. However, what I um, want to caution uh, against is this idea of, uh, you know, sort of thinking that you, that machines now somehow have gained some sort of a consciousness and can provide us with uh, things that um, we didn't know before. 
Because at the end of the day, a machine is still just a giant calculator, right? It's running a whole series of mathematical equations. And for instance, a deep learning system is nothing but that. It's really just a giant set of mathematical calculations that hopefully give us an answer that we can use. But this is going to depend entirely on the operator, which is the human, who builds the model, who selects the data that goes into it, um, mm -hmm. and instructs the computer in such a way that something comes out. So I don't think in necessarily that we have changed dramatically that um, um, position of the machine. We just ascribe to it now human-like qualities that it probably does not deserve. Ah, there's an interesting point. I love the point-counterpoint here. I'm going to go back. Francesco Mari, any thoughts? We have some pros and cons and yeses and nos. Why don't you uh, weigh back in on this, Francesco, since you started this party? Go ahead. Yeah, so this is a, this is a big debate that is around, if you want, the concept of artificial intelligence and intelligence itself. To a certain extent, I think as long as the, the compu a computer looks like um, having intelligent behaviors, mm -hmm. what's inside the box can be fairly relevant. And, uh, you know, there are reduc reductionistic positions that say, yeah, the human brain at the end is also a bunch of neurons uh, that fire according to um, chemical combinations and stuff like that. Maybe it's not that different. At the end, the fascinating thing from my perspective is that we're seeing more and more difference between what we put in the computer and what we get out of the computer. And, uh, and it's a, even more fascinating is a kind of process in creating, and I think creating knowledge is not such a, an appropriate definition for this process, that is um, different from ours. Uh, the point I was making before, it's, it's, it's more based on, on a, a mathematical analysis, which is something human beings are not so good at, uh, or certain kind of statistical analysis that is not the forte of, of human beings, but, but can be very complementary and can, and, and can actually produce additional uh, knowledge. Then, yeah, at the end, inside you have a bunch of transistors or, or pseudo-transistors, uh, uh, you know, silicon pieces of metal and stuff like that. But, but what you see outside um, can, be, can be surprising, can be smart, can be, can be also extremely silly. Sometimes, you know, I, one of my hobbies is to collect silly examples, and, and even the best mm -hmm. systems sometimes produce very silly examples. Thank you, Francesco. I know you have a good sense of humor. I just want to interject here for a second. I looked up computer jokes for geeks because I know there's a, a raging segment of the population who loves to make jokes about computers. Let me just insert these two now that you brought up a sense of humor, and then you can continue. A computer lets you make more mistakes faster than any invention in human history, with the possible exceptions of handguns and tequila. I'm just going to leave that one alone. The second one is there are 10 types of people in the world, those who understand binary and those who don't. We'll just leave that one alone. Think binary. Okay, Francesco, continue what you were saying. I, I just had to make you laugh. I hope I did. Go ahead. <laughs> no, this is a great one. And, yeah, we were talking about uh, uh, the, way, the way Amazon or, for example, Netflix produce recommendations. Another example I love is Google Translator. You know, Google Translator, I, I, I don't know how much you had the chance of using it. It's an amazing system. Years ago, it was pretty rough, 
But right now, I can, you know, I can put in, I, I, I work for a German company, I don't speak German. And, and almost on a daily basis, I, I, I put German text in, in Google Translator and I get amazing, amazingly precise results. And, and it's not that Google Translator has a dictionary inside. They put a bunch of UN and other uh, uh, international institution texts that were available in multiple languages and trained the software to learn. And still, and, and, and this, unfortunately, is something that can be, can be understandable only for people who speak Italian or maybe a little bit of Spanish. You can get things like, if you, I don't know if they corrected. A couple of months ago, that was still valid. You put the sentence, I will be unavailable tomorrow in, in Google Translator, which is very simple, and you ask to translate it in Italian, you get a sentence that is exact, has exactly the opposite meaning. So mm -hmm. that's silly, this, in the category of silly mistakes, that is actually the result of complexity and an effective lack of determinism that you get out of this, of this complexity, complexity driven by algorithms and the very large amounts of data that, that these this, uh, this programs, this software eat. This is Thank Jay, you. I can jump in please. here for a second. Go ahead, Jay. Yes, but please. One of the interesting things is, is that you know, Google Translator is actually an interesting one as well. To, you know, I like the example that um, Francesco mentioned, but another one, for instance, is um, if you type the first couple of uh, words of lorem ipsum dolorem, it, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's the standard stuff that you fill in on um, you know, when you're designing a book or a website right. or whatever for text, right? Um, the way Google Translator works is that it's trying to match um, source um, uh, text in a certain language and tries to see if there is a translation of it somewhere on the web, right? It basically is looking for examples and then use that to interpret something else. Now, some people have put fake translations on the web of what this lorem ipsum actually means when it's more sort of like pig Latin in a, in a placeholder, mm -hmm. right? So if you type that in Google, you'll get very interesting translations back. And that's exactly one of its weaknesses, right? By, by simply trying to match something that exists in one place and assume that it's, it's simply going to be transferable to another place, um, we have to be very careful because in some cases we're talking about like actual text. Like, you know, there's probably very good translations in all kinds of languages of, say, the U.S. Constitution. Right? So that works really well because some humans have really put a lot of effort in. Right? If somebody puts a jokey translation up, right, then suddenly your system can distinguish between whether you did something, uh, you know, with a lot of effort and attention, or you just put up a, you know, jokey um, explanation of what that text means, right? So I think we have to be very careful that we just push a whole bunch of data in into a black box, which is especially the case in, in, in deep learning, because half the time you don't really have a full understanding what the, uh, the computer model does inside of it itself. You just see something going in and something going out. And we have to make sense out of that at, at such a point. So we always should try to find um, uh, ways that can help us verify that the outcomes that we got out of such systems somehow is reflective of reality rather than creating a new one. Thank hey, you. Francisco uh, here. May I, may I give yes, up a please. comment? Yes, please. 
I hope you will. Well, I think that that's a great point, Jay. This is exactly what human beings do. Take information out of context and, uh, and reapply in, in the wrong manner. I do it a lot, at least, um, that's, unfortunately. Uh, but, uh, but that's exactly the point for me. It's, uh, it's interesting behavior that uh, then computers have different cognitive mistakes, if you want. But that's what human beings do a lot. Thank you all. I want to move ahead with a different, slightly different topic. Vishal Danica, I'm looking at your notes here, and I found something, a little bit of a segue here. I'm going to read a couple comments. I'd like you to start our second conversation thread. And then, of course, we'll invite Jay and Francesco in. The question on the table, you say, is what is big data? Many companies are still struggling to understand the definition and how they can adopt a strategy. And here you add, we think big, de- big data is not only the traditional data sources used today, that's transactions, financial, etc. It also encompasses new types of data. We have social data. We have sensor data. We have geolocation data. We have unstructured. But what can a company do with it? And then you add big data is a huge discussion topic, not just in the CIO's office, but across all C-suite offices today. Vishal, why don't you elaborate for us? Sounds good, Bernie. So this is essentially what I see uh, working with several customers now. And it's, it's becoming more and more common that executives across the C-suite are interested in learning more and more around big data and Hadoop. And like a reason, I'll kind of give some stats to share with Mm -hmm. everybody. Uh, One of the recent Gartner studies kind of looked upon uh, the adoption of big data and Hadoop, essentially. So they kind of did a study understanding within the next two years what organizations plan to use Hadoop. And it was pretty interesting to see that about 44% of organizations plan to use Hadoop already, all right? Uh, but that still remains as 54% are still unconvinced, which immediately takes on to the next question is that what are the barriers of that adoption? And a very interesting insight came out of that study was 50% of the executives are trying to understand the value proposition around Hadoop. And that, to me, mm-hmm. is the core, core reason why you're seeing this drive towards big data across the C-suite and not just the CIO. If you think from a CIO standpoint, they're looking at, they understand the technology benefits they're getting out of it, the cost uh, benefit associated with it, a lower TCO, etc. But the big piece is around understanding the overall business benefit and what they can do in order to trans- transform the way they did business prior to now, and therein lies the value. So, for example, if you think about it, um, big data is turning into more and more like Big Brother, right? Like every phone call is being tracked, every movement is recorded on a CCD, and there is a whole bunch of things going on <clears throat> with the Internet of Things. And uh, where you can see, is, for example, where my car may talk to my auto service provider to tell me that there is an issue with my engine. And some of this can become pretty scary, right? But then there is the other side of big data, which becomes really very compelling. And I kind of give an example around healthcare, where healthcare organizations are dramatically changing using predictive analytics. So they're using predictive analytics to reduce readmittance into the hospitals. They are using real-time surveillance, using sensor, Internet of Things kind of data for rapid responses. And I'm happy to share some examples of what we are seeing with some of our customers, but that to me is the drive which is changing uh, the whole the whole philosophy around how to do business uh, with the availability of this vast 
sources of data, not just going with the traditional structured sources of data, but also looking at the unstructured sources of data. Thank you, Vishal. Good topic. Jay Thoden Van Velsen, any comments? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with uh, with uh, Vishal. I think one of the things that I've seen uh, in my conversations with customers um, is that every like people are convinced that big data is going to do wonderful things for them, but they have a hard time figuring out where to apply their first use cases. So it's more a question of it's a difficulty to start rather than a difficulty in um, uh, um, deciding whether or not you want to use it at all. And You're um, right. in fact, You're over the last right. probably six months, what mm-hmm. I felt is that, you know, that, that is changing a little bit. Like people are starting more talking about, you know, specific use cases where something can be applied rather than big data is going to do wonderful things for us. And the more you can uh, focus your attention into a specific business problem, a lot of the confusion falls away because then the business problem is going to dictate what data sources you're going to use, what kind of big data techniques you're going to use, what the landscape might look like, what demands you might have on the landscape because of either a batch or a real-time element to it. So um, I think we've just gone through that, you know, peak of the hype, and now we're getting to the point of where we're going to see some real practical um, applications beyond just, say, the, 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 the trailblazers. Right, and actually I would, I would add to that as well, mm-hmm. Jay, to what you just mentioned, right? Like typically what you just mentioned, what we call that is a customer journey when they think about from a big data adoption. And we tend to recommend our customers to your, the way just you just mentioned, start small, Start with just a single use case, a single type of data, mm-hmm. learn from that small project and build on top of it. But that's around the journey aspect of it. But then there is the other side of the coin. And the other side of the coin tells me as you start adopting more and more big data and Hadoop projects, the big question also comes up is whichever stage you are in, what is the readiness of your organization and how are you going to move to that different stage of maturity? So what we call around that is the stages of maturity uh, from a framework standpoint. And the idea behind that is to help customers measure their current and future maturity stages across various capabilities areas. And those capability areas are not just about how and what I can do with the particular data, but it's around a comprehensive view, looking at executive sponsorship, looking at an organization and cultural uh, design, looking at technology infrastructure, uh, looking into the aspects of what kind of a data use cases we are identifying. And all of this, if you start measuring that with the right attributes and characteristics in place, helps the customer understand what stages of excellence are they on, right? Is it a stage one, which is um, very new at it, or where is, are you at stage five, which is where you have achieved the end state nirvana around data transformation. So it's a, it's an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing topic. It's a constant evolution of where a company sees themselves. Thank you, Vishal and Jay. Francesco, I want to get you in on this, but first I want to read a quick comment from Dave Fowler, our series sponsor on Twitter. He says, is your big data reflective of reality, he asks, and the answer, according to Dave Fowler, is G-I-G-O. You all know what that is. Garbage in, garbage out. Is as true as ever and expanding in impact. Francesco, you don't have to address that comment. I just wanted to introduce it. So, Francesco, thoughts on big data? 
Yeah, actually, you know, I think that the G, uh, uh, GI Geo comment is less relevant for big data uh, than it used to be when you, when you use computers to do accounting or, or warehouse management. Because mm -hmm. when you connect your computers, your, your, your software to the world, you have garbage. There's no way around it. And, uh, and the fact that you use uh, uh, statistical methods a lot to analyze what happens uh, in, in the world around you, um, that means that you, you, you have to deal with, uh, with a certain dose of garbage. It's less unavoidable, and, and you, you have to manage it. So in a way, it's less critical than it used to be. Of course, you need to have a, a certain quality on the data. Otherwise, you cannot really do much. But, uh, but I think it changes also the relationship with that famous uh, uh, principle. And, and com coming back to the point that uh, Vishal made before, I, I actually think that one specific challenge in the, in the adoption of big data opportunities or technologies is the fact that there are certain things that you can do that somehow are uh, incremental compared to the current business models or, or working models of organizations, like for example in the last few years I've been working a lot on maintenance uh, uh, projects using big data and IoT, that's sort of you know, doing what they're already doing better, but a lot of the opportunities I believe uh, are enabled by going beyond the boundaries. Uh, think about things like uh, uh, smart cities or smart whatever systems, uh, logistic systems, um, selling systems, and in order to turn those opportunities into reality, you really have to pull players together. Uh, probably you need, you need to have a certain role of governments as well. Um, and that's hard because, because uh, um, sometimes it's hard to convince a single organization to move and to try something new when it's about, you know, moving 10 or 15 or 20 organizations in, in, in co and convince them to, to join forces to do something for, for the environment where, of course, everybody should be able to benefit from a business perspective as well, but it's really uh, you know, m m common objective. It's n not easy. And for me, if I have to point out one factor that is slowing down the adoption of big data, I, I, would, I would pick this one. Okay, thank you. And you know what? We are 10 minutes and counting till the end of the show, and I want to turn to the notes that Jay Thoden Van Velzen sent me. I know you worked on them, Jay, and I'd like to bring up one more topic before we move into our crystal ball predictions round, which we'll do in about four and a half or five minutes. I'll watch the clock. You don't have to. Jay, I, I found something very provocative here in your notes, among, among other thoughts. You say just slapping an algorithm on a problem, and you put quotes on slapping an algorithm on a problem, is likely going to lead to errors, misinterpretation, and a tendency to fool oneself. And then you add, given a big enough data set and a big and complex enough model combined with the desire of someone, here's the key word, to find a pattern. Patterns will be found, but without necessarily reflecting reality in any way or producing a usable result. This sounds like a little bit of a tautology, uh, Jay. We're going in and out of, can we use it? Yes. How do we use it? Yes. What if we find a pattern? Is it usable? Is it reality? Is, is there an end to this tunnel? Is there a good light at the end of this tunnel? Absolutely, but it means rigorous methodology. Um, you know, the, the idea that we uh, suddenly are completely out of the world of statistics and mathematics and we can just, 
you know, run some MapReduce on a data set and get magical results is probably a um, careless one, right? We, we have to make sure that when we do something like market basket analysis that we pick the right algorithm, that we pick the right data sets. Um, you know, suddenly we're dealing with um, probabilities rather than, um, uh, than, than actuals, right? If I have a series of transactions, I can multi sum that up, um, uh, divide that into segments and things like that, and at any point in time, it will always be accurate. If, on the other hand, I'm doing um, a customer segmentation and um, I go down too deep, um, beyond what my data really can justify, I might find myself into areas where it's no longer really relevant. Right? Let's say I have retail data about all of the United States uh, for a particular retail chain. And now I want to look for a specific product that is um, you know, attractive to a particular type of individual uh, or type of customer segment. Right? If we break it down to a particular postal code, to a particular product uh, segment, to a particular uh, you know, uh, income level or, or whatever it is, we may actually um, get some results. But if you look deeper, it may only be based on like you know, three or four people because you narrowed it down to such a small level that it no longer really is, um, is a, a good predictor of the behavior that you're trying to predict. Um, you know, the same thing could happen with, um, you know, a, um, a predictive maintenance situation where you're, you're looking for failures in certain type of sensors um, and you see that in certain extreme temperatures stuff fail, but that may have only happened like three or four times, right? So we have to be um, – we, we can run all kinds of calculations, take 30, 40 different dimensions – and uh, get down to a point where, it, you know, we, we assume that we have an outcome when actually all we've done is like, yes, somewhere in the data set is an example of, you know, this somewhat rare occurrence. Right? So mm -hmm. we, we have to be careful that we interpret our results well, right, that we right. And you know, model it in such a way um, and test it in such a way that the outcomes of it are you know, to a certain extent testable. Right, so that we have mm -hmm. something that we can combine it with. So, for instance, I like very much the idea of combining big data results with actual. So the more actual data you have combined with something that is a lot more fuzzy and see if we can create some links between the two to make um, the actuals more informative by this additional enrichment of, of data, mm -hmm. while at the same time we use the actuals to temper a little bit, you know, the crazy stuff that we may get out of the um, mm -hmm. machine learning system. See, Fine. and thou shalt find think, what you're looking for. Who's that? Go ahead. Uh, this is Vishal Bonnie. So uh, mm -hmm. I think I, I tend to agree a little with what Jay is talking about from the standpoint of the limitations of the data, but therein lies the opportunity to leverage big data from a data set standpoint. I think what Jay just explained kind of is around the how is the data set being defined and how big is your data set and what, how far back in time the data set goes and how many data points do you have. I'll kind of give an example of what we did with one of our customers. I think this may actually help uh, 
help put a better understanding of what I'm trying to kind of communicate on why in some instances I see this work very well. I'll give an example of UC Irvine Health, one of our customers, and what UC Irvine Health did was something very interesting. So they're looking at Internet of Things, machine sensor data, and what they did is that typically when you go in a typical hospital, nurses manually measure your patient's vital signs every few hours, and this means that the health of other patients, of rather of their patients, may change in the hours between two different intervals of measuring those vitals. Now, their medical center is now going to have patients there a sensium vitals patch, which is like nothing but just a, trans, a, a patch with a sensor on it which transmits data on an ongoing mm-hmm. basis. And that would monitor wirelessly and transmit heart rate, respiratory rate, and temperature. And the nurses will be alerted if any of the patient's vital signs cross certain risk thresholds so the staff can attend to the patient immediately. But from a long-term perspective, if you think about it, the sensor data, the sensor data enables something much more profound, right? It essentially goes with predictive analytics that can allow caregivers to respond before a patient's vital signs ever uh, come to go over a particular threshold. And to me, that's the, that's the key. That's what's driving it. So, for example, most of those minute-by-minute snapshots of vital signs will be unremarkable, but the data points that they generate, and in this instance it could be around 4,300 plus per patient per day, they are building up overall blocks of algorithms that can predict near-term outcomes with an ever-increasing degree of certainty. And why is this important? Because if you think about it, an increased temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and an isolation of other data to what Jay was talking about, may not be a cause of concern, but those same vitals in combination with all the prior data on that patient combined with years of data of other patients with similar risk factors combined with unique characteristics of that individual patient's medical history, physical characteristics, gender, age, and all the other genome data, that will eventually paint a far more detailed picture with more predictive power for the for the hospitals and for the medical caregivers. And I agree, it's, it's a work in process because this is only possible with as much data you're collecting. So as the big data provides that framework to store and process that large volumes of data, we can see this come up with much better fine-tuned uh, preciseness mm-hmm. in future. Yeah. Thank you very much, Vishal. I mean, guess what? Hey, guys, guys, you, guys. Right? I think my, my role in this... <laughs> This show has been a little bit of the Cassandra of being a little bit careful, but, you know, I'm completely convinced of exactly those types of uh, uh, applications will be extremely beneficial. Gentlemen, we are out of time. I have about uh, two minutes left. I want to make sure we get predictions, so I'm going to limit you to two sentences each, two short sentences each. Francesco, Mari, fast forward this conversation. Let's pick the year 2025 years away. What will have changed about our topic on the creation of knowledge? Two sentences, Francesco, go. Okay, so by 2025, computers will autonomously make at least a two very important scientific discoveries, and later a human being will find that one of those is wrong. Okay, that's it. I'm out of time. Let's go to Vishal Danica quickly. Give me one sentence prediction. Go. By 2020, half of the world's data will be processed by Apache Hadoop. Thank you very much. I expected that one. And Jay Thoden-Van Velsen, one sentence prediction. 
most of the AI that we're going to see will be soft AI that will be at the edges that we barely notice, will, but will make our applications work better for us. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, so articulate, so passionate on the topic. Dave Fowler is applauding on Skype chat with me saying this was a great conversation. I've already told him to invite you back. Thank you, Francesco Mari. Thank you, Michelle Danica. Thank you, Jay Thoden Van Velsen. Hope I got everybody's names right. And thank you, Dave Dave uh, Fowler. Dave is running 25 for 25 live episodes all through three seasons of The Future of Business with Game Changers. So applause to one of my most diligent series sponsors. Thank you, Dave, and for your tweets. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you to our panelists, and thank you to SAP Services, Dave Fowler, and Brad and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another edition of The Future of Business with Game Changers. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. And please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.